This is Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. We bring you the latest and best strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines by investing in healthy and engaged workforces that deliver real ROI. Welcome to today's program. I'm Stephen Van Yoder. And I'm Jim Purcell, and we're the co-founders of the Returns on Wellbeing Institute. Welcome to today's podcast. Healthy eating plays a central role in achieving optimal health, yet research shows only one in 10 adults in the United States eat enough fruits or vegetables to meet recommended guidelines. And data from the CDC found that one in three Americans eat fast food every day. Given these facts, we will explore today how wellness programs can play a role in promoting healthy eating and why employers should include healthy eating in their well-being initiatives. Here to discuss this today with us is Dr. David Katz. Uh, Dr. Katz is a globally recognized authority on preventive and lifestyle medicine. He's spoken on six continents and authored roughly 200 peer-reviewed publications and, exhaustingly, 18 books, including his most recent How to Eat All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. David's a board-certified specialist in preventive medicine and public health. He's the founding director of Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, and he's the founder of Diet ID, a company that provides a digital program to assess and improve diet. Uh, welcome, Dr. Katz. Thanks very much, Jim. Good to be with you and you, Steve. What's the relative importance of a proper diet and health and well-being? The, the answer to that question, Jim, has influenced the trajectory of my entire career. Uh, I, I trained in internal medicine, finishing mm -hmm. in 1991, went immediately into a second residency in preventive medicine, public health at Yale, finished in 1993, and that year in the Journal of the American Medical Association, a paper came out entitled Actual Causes of Death in the United States. So 30 years ago, give or take, the three leading causes of premature death in the U.S. were tobacco, number one, poor diet, number two, lack of physical activity, bad use of feet forks, and fingers. Eighty percent of premature deaths captured right there. So that was 30 years ago. But if we jump forward to now, we have literature telling us, including the seminal Global Burden of Disease study, that diet is number one. Diet is number one in the U.S., and it's number one in nearly 200 countries around the world. The single leading predictor variable of premature death and risk of chronic disease is poor quality diet. It's overtaken tobacco, both because we continue to eat badly and the food industry keeps inventing new varieties of junk food, but also because we've made some advances in curtailing uh, tobacco use. But that's the current state of things. The single leading predictor for premature death and chronic disease is the quality of your diet. Yep. And, and when you say poor diet, what do you mean by that? I mean, I, I know we we, what immediately comes to mind is sugar, um, uh, processed flour, things like that. But help us out there. What, what are the, what are the real bad boys here? I've been joking and quipping for years that there are many ways to eat badly, and Americans at least are committed to exploring them. <laughs> and you know, I mean, every time we get we get preoccupied with some way to fix diet, it, it's really just a new way to put lipstick on the proverbial pig. So, you know, for example, we had the idea back in the 80s that we should cut fat. There's a long backstory to that having to do with Ansel Keys' seven-country study. A lot of good research, and actually the insights were very valid. 
if we had shifted to foods naturally low in fat, like for example, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, we would have been fine. But we yep. didn't. We invented low-fat junk food. So we added a lot of sugar. We added refined carbohydrate. We actually didn't reduce our intake of fat very much at all. We just increased our intake of calories. So, of course, we got fatter and sicker. And then instead of recognizing that, okay, fixating on one macronutrient or one micronutrient or one food component may not be a good idea, maybe we need to see the forest through the trees and get the whole diet right. No, we didn't do that. We just said, pick the wrong macronutrient. Let's cut carbs now. And then we got mm -hmm. low-carb junk food. And we've had low glycemic junk food, and now we have gluten-free junk food, and I think there's probably lectin-free junk food, and maybe there's sirtuin-free junk food, and on and on it goes. So yep. really eating well means, as Michael Pollan put it in seven words, eating food, not too much, mostly plants. So if your diet is mostly made up of unprocessed or minimally processed vegetables, fruits, grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and water when thirsty, you can't go too far wrong. If you get the foods right, the nutrients sort themselves out. Gotcha. If you fixate on any one nutrient or food component, there are still ways to get the diet wrong. So the liabilities include too much added sugar, too much refined carbohydrate, too much of the wrong kinds of fat, too much sodium, too few antioxidants, too little fiber, too little whole grain, and on and on it goes. Right? It's really the overall pattern that matters. Now, I've, I've heard you talk about this, but why don't you summarize the state of U.S. health today and how that's connected with healthy eating? Well, it, it's been a really acute concern for me, Jim, during the pandemic. You know, the, the pandemic riveted people's attention like nothing in recent memory. And in some ways, that was very frustrating for me because we had a pandemic already. We had pandemic obesity. We had pandemic type 2 diabetes. We had pandemic heart disease. These things are at ever higher levels in the U.S. and around the world, year in, year out. And, you know, as, as an example of how potent lifestyle is influencing cardiometabolic disease, there was a paper in the Journal of the American Heart Association indicating that the prior pandemic of cardiometabolic disease related to bad diet, bad lifestyle practices, and so forth, accounted for 60% of the hospitalization and mortality toll of the COVID pandemic. In other words, if we had fixed the pandemic we had before SARS-CoV-2, the toll of SARS-CoV-2 would have been 60% less. We would have saved more than half wow. of everybody that wound up in the hospital or died. Yep. That's huge. Yep. The other thing that's been identified during the pandemic is that diet quality per se measured objectively tracks with COVID outcomes. So match for other variables, a higher quality diet if you got COVID meant a better clinical outcome than a lower quality diet. Mm -hmm. And then finally, right. leaving aside SARS-CoV-2, there was an op-ed in the New York Times August 26, 2019, so this was before the, the infectious disease pandemic, by Darius Mosaparian, Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, and Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture for the United States, entitled, Our Food is Killing Too Many of Us. And in that op-ed, they cite the primary literature indicating that poor diet quality kills more than 500,000 Americans prematurely every year. So I don't think we can overstate the magnitude of this particular problem. And then we have to quickly append, this is a problem we could fix anytime we decided we really wanted to. Yep. Yeah. Now, we talk about regular physical activity or exercise, and we talk about diet. Why don't you explain to me why 
diet actually is somewhat more important than regular physical activity. They're both important. We know that. But why, sure. if you focus on something, why is diet even more important? Yeah. So, so I really don't like to unbundle the gym. I, I, they clearly are both very important. And, and you could argue that for overall vitality, they're nearly comparable importance. For example, you know, everybody mm -hmm. these days is, is very focused, as, as we become an ever older society, on preserving cognition, how do you keep your brain sharp? And I think one of the best things you can do is take your brain for a walk every day. The evidence is overwhelming that physical activity is the best way to preserve good brain function. But again, when we take stock of independent variables that are predictors of the things that matter most, years in life, life in years, number one on that list is diet. High diet quality, less risk of all major chronic disease, less risk of dying prematurely from all causes, and lower diet quality, higher risk of dying prematurely, higher risk of chronic disease. And that one variable, diet quality, surpasses all others, including physical activity. The other thing that's critical, and I, I think your question points in this direction, one of the major drivers of all the cardiometabolic liabilities attached to poor quality diet is obesity. Obesity is hyperendemic or pandemic, if you will. It's a pathway variable, right? So, you know, I, I, I've long thought of obesity as a canary in the coal mine of chronic disease. Where you have more obesity, you have more hypertension, you have more heart disease, you have more type 2 diabetes, you have more cancer, you have more dementia, you have more disabling arthritis. So, what is the most important lifestyle factor to control weight? It's diet. And, and the reason is we have such an abundance of hyper palatable calories available to us. It's just incredibly easy to out-eat exercise and incredibly hard <laughs> to out-exercise an unrestrained diet. I mean, the amount of activity you have to do to stay ahead of all those tasty right. calories if you don't control those little devils, um, you know, it's off the charts for most people. So both are really important to health and vitality. But if you had to pick the one supreme variable most directly influencing years in life, life in years, it would be the overall quality of diet. You know, uh, recently you've been promoting uh, an idea that um, you've called food is medicine, right? And it's a very intriguing, catchy, you want to know more about that. So that would be my first question. What does that mean, you know, in a, as an overarching idea? And then I'm going to ask you some questions about what uh, employers might want to take away from that insight. Steve, this is a classic example, you know, of what's old is new again, because, you know, everybody who talks about food is medicine starts with a quote from Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Mm -hmm. So sort of the, you know, the, the, the founding father of medical thinking recognized that food is the construction material for the growing body of a child. Food is the construction material for the replacements that an adult body needs every day to the tune of hundreds of millions of cells and spent enzymes and hormones. And we're, we're replacing parts of ourselves every single day and the source material is food. So it can either be junk or it can be high quality source material right. you choose. And then of course it's the fuel that runs this incredible machine. It, it, it simply stands to reason that it would be incredibly important. And food as medicine simply takes the importance of that and extends it and says, if you have a medical condition, whatever it may be, diabetes, hypertension, etc., the right quality food can make a huge difference and maybe even fix it. And, and we have now very direct modern evidence that food literally can be medicine. So we have the mm. DASH trials, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. 
food works as well, food chosen right, works as well as the best pharmacotherapy to treat and potentially reverse hypertension. We have that evidence for heart disease, the work of Dean Ornish showing that high quality diet lifestyle can reverse coronary atherosclerosis. We have that evidence for type 2 diabetes with the diabetes prevention program where a lifestyle intervention focused on improving diet and physical activity were twice as good as the best drugs we've got to prevent diabetes in people with insulin resistance at high risk and, and on and on it goes. So food literally can be medicine and the thing we're trying to overcome, those of us who preach that gospel is business as usual in America is we use poor quality food to create poor quality health which we then treat with drugs that have adverse side right. effects and high costs. Right. What we could do is use high quality food to preempt all that right at the start. Now maybe Big Pharma <laughs> wouldn't like it too bad, uh, you know, because the public would certainly be the, the beneficiary of that. Now in um, workplace wellness programs, which, um, you know, their overriding goal is to try to preempt uh, costly situations and um, you know uh, the returns on well-being institute would also add uh, you know healthier happier employees are just better for business okay you know all, all the physical and health care uh, considerations aside but um, right. this food is medicine idea uh, where do you think that sits uh, you know with the typical wellness program or how could that case be made for a wellness program and to pay just as much attention to that as gym memberships and all that the things that are the well, typical I, purview. Yeah, no, so I totally agree with the, the importance of making that case to you. So I, I think the evidence-based case is a slam dunk. You know, it's what we've been discussing. It's the fact that when you look objectively at all of the available evidence, science, literature, it indicates that, yeah, there are a number of lifestyle factors that are very important. Sleep is important. Stress is important. Social connections are important. Avoiding toxins. Right. But the number one predictive variable is diet quality. You can't ignore that. It's, it's, it's the single leading influencer. But then the next question becomes when you're talking about a business setting, because the business of business is business. And yes, you want productivity, you want a happy workforce and all that, but it has to be cost effective because the right. bottom line is, is right the economics of this. Well, then you have to connect the dots between, okay, what does it cost to improve diet quality? What are the various ways of doing that? Because you can educate people, you can help them shop better, all the way to giving them high quality food and everything in between, right? It, it can range from just moving electrons around where you coach people digitally to having human coaches in the middle, or you can take over people's diets completely, various costs attached to that. What are the gains? How do the gains in improving diet quality translate into changes in biomarkers? Uh, how are they translated into changes in incident chronic disease? How does that translate into changes in prevalent chronic disease? In other words, how many people in a given workforce have hypertension in a given year or heart disease or type 2 diabetes? And then how does that translate into a change need for medical therapy ranging from medication to ER visits to hospitalization? And then finally, how does that translate into a change in cost? And this has been an area of intense focus for us at Diet ID because we have the means to get way upstream and objectively measure a change in diet quality. So we connected those dots and as you know we published a paper in the American Journal of Health Promotion, the financial case for food as medicine, introduction right. of an ROI calculator. And and so, you know, basically we're able to show across a wide range of interventions 
food as medicine is cost beneficial and it's cost beneficial within that critical first year and often within the first or second financial quarter and I think that's a game changer I, I think making this case both in terms of the human costs and in terms of the financial costs and saying you win both ways I think that opens up a huge opportunity yeah yeah we are the returns on well-being Institute so near and dear to our heart is the idea of returns and in your article the ROI calculator uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that what kind of ROIs do you believe that can be obtained and I suppose there are ROIs from a business perspective and then there are ROIs or outcomes from an employee perspective uh, what are you talking sure. about there yeah, both. And yeah, I totally agree, Jim. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm a public health physician. I'm, I'm only very accidentally a business person. Um, uh, and so the, the currency that, that mattered most to me always was the human condition, right? So more years in life, more life in years. That's the primary return. When you help populations eat better, live better, you are advancing those currencies, vitality and longevity. But again, it, you know, it, the business of business is business, and you, you really do have to concern yourself with uh, financial accounting as well. So w what we did basically was take what was hiding in plain sight. So there, there's a literature that indicates that if you can improve diet quality, you have a predictable change in common biomarkers that matter a lot, glycohemoglobin and blood pressure, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and inflammatory cytokines on monocles. If you change those, you change incidence in chronic disease. In other words, people who would have gone on to develop heart disease or diabetes or hypertension may not. And the other thing you do is people who've already crossed that line into type 2 diabetes or hypertension, you can pull them back and their need for medication can go away. So you're impacting both incident disease, which is new onset, and prevalent disease, which is established. What we found is that saving money with food as medicine is routinely possible and and it's possible with light touch interventions that are just digitally delivered and cost very little and with intensive interventions where you literally give people high quality food because although you're spending more to do that you're also preventing more disease reversing more disease and just to, to attach some numbers to this very quickly the average cost of hypertension per person per year versus not is about two thousand extra dollars so you could afford to spend something close to $2,000 a year on that person for an intervention and you'd still, it would be a wash. If you spend less than that, you're saving money. For diabetes, it's about $10,000. For coronary disease, it's closer to $25,000. And all of these conditions are hyperendemic in the United States and in any given working population. So there's a lot of looming and present chronic disease that's occurring at a very high annual cost and any self-insured employer is holding that back and dealing with that. If you can spend considerably less on high quality food as medicine, whether it's education or education plus food or you know digital human health coaching, any combination of those, you tally up, okay, what did we spend to reach a high risk population? How much disease did we reverse effectively treat? How much use of pharmacotherapy did we obviate? How much disease did, did we prevent? And what we found with our ROI calculators, we could vary those assumptions across a very wide range, essential a, a sensitivity analysis. 
And there was almost always savings within that critical first year. I think there are significant additional financial benefits associated with reductions in absenteeism, presenteeism, and enhanced productivity that our simple calculator doesn't capture. And I would invite you or others or the health economists out there to take this tool and say, we've actually adapted it and added additional considerations and the cost benefit of good food as medicine interventions is even greater than first appearances suggested. One of the, the, the areas of friction you encounter from people is, yeah, I mean, as you say, people eat fast food and they're used to what they eat every day. And because they're used to it, they tend to prefer it. Right. But research shows consistently that you can change taste preference by becoming familiar with a whole different suite of foods. You just have to give it a little bit of time. It doesn't take long. We're talking about weeks. Right. And in fact, studies even show that people who are adapted, habituated to a very low quality diet in an intervention where they go to a high quality diet within as little as three months, develop aversions to the junk food they used to love hmm. and preferences for the higher quality food that they're habituating to. So I've long talked to my patients about okay. taste bud rehab. Just you know, essentially go one step at a time, make incremental changes to your diet give your taste buds time to adjust right. and within as little as weeks to a few months at most you actually can learn to love the foods that will love you and your health back for the rest of your life I mean, talk about a return on a relatively modest investment and right. you can do that same thing at the family level it's very powerful it's, you know if you really significantly rehabilitate your taste buds the really junky stuff doesn't appeal anymore. You just don't right. want it. You know, the right. sweet stuff's too sweet, the salty stuff's too salty, the right. processed stuff tastes like chemicals rather than food. You don't right. want it. Uh, and, and I'm there personally and have long been, but I've seen it happen with many, many patients over the years. We, we just last Friday, we uh, issued a workplace wellness best practice study. And it, it did find that exemplary wellness programs give more or less equal emphasis to physical fitness and healthy eating. So that's Right. That's good. Uh, but, you know, so many of them deal with it at the workplace. You, you might have, if you have a cafeteria, you serve healthy food, you change your vending machines. How do you reach them at home? How do you reach them where they live constantly? These are challenging questions. How do you reach people where they live? I would say, for one thing, we need to think about units of culture, which are bigger than an individual. I've long said, Jim, people die it alone, but live it together. I think it's it's a, a, a tragedy and a travesty that diet books are so popular because inevitably those are adults with kids who go on a diet to lose weight rather than improve the quality of household mm. eating, mm. which basically says to the kids, you know, this is what we do. You can wait till you grow up and are struggling with your own weight, and then you can go on a diet like me and you know spend a life chasing your tail. It makes no sense. So you know we, we ought to be thinking about families, and I think that that requires that we look at the complementarity of programming for adults in the workplace and kids. And I you know I have many fantasies about this. I, I was editor in chief of the journal Childhood Obesity for five years and wrote about a program called BOSS, Businesses Applying Wellness Strategies in School. We do really want to alter the culture, and that means you know every place people live and love and learn and work and play and pray, we, we want to reach them at all those touch points so that healthy living 
permeates that full expanse. It's doable, but I haven't really seen too many good examples of it yet. So uh, tell us about your company, Diet ID, and um, how that can help employers act on what we've been talking about today. There's the famous expression, Steve, you guys know it, uh, you knew it before I did, from the world of business, we manage what we measure. And there are variations on the theme, right, that you could flip it yeah. around and say, if we don't manage it, we don't measure it, rather, we're not likely to manage it. And we've been having this entire discussion about diet quality, and yet ask yourselves, you know, have you ever gone to a doctor and said, I'm going to assess your diet quality now? Is it, is it ever done? Is it a part of routine clinical care? If you've seen a cardiologist or an endocrinologist that they said, I'm going to do an assessment of your diet pattern and diet quality. Never. Hmm. It's not done. And the reason it's not done is because we didn't have good tools to do it. Uh, you could spend about 90 minutes trying to badly remember exactly what you ate for the past three months, which foods, how much, serve what way, with which sauce or spread or dressing. You know, each time you answer the component questions of that lengthy questionnaire, you're a little bit wrong and a little bit wrong. By the time you're done, you're a whole lot wrong. I mean, it's right. impossible to answer that, right? So, Jim, exactly how much ice cream have you had in the past six months? How often? What serving size? What flavor? Uh, what kind of ice cream? What was served over? You know, and when you when you guess, you're going to guess low for ice cream and high for broccoli. Everybody does. Mm. So there's that. There's a 24-hour recall where we try to remember everything you ate yesterday. Uh, or, you know, you can write down everything you eat as you're eating it for a week, which is pretty darn tedious. So those were the tools of the trade. Uh, tremendously limiting, and the result is we know diet quality in almost nobody. And that's really bothered me. It's bothered me for a long time. It bothered me in research. It bothered me in clinical practice. It bothered me for public health. And, you know, when you're bothered, it's like that grain of sand in an oyster. You, you can either just be irritated until you spit it out or you can make a pearl. So I'm really delighted and proud to say that in this particular case, we made a pearl working with, with a number of esteemed colleagues. We invented an entirely new way to assess diet. It's based on pattern recognition. You don't have to misremember anything. It takes 60 seconds. It's easy. It's even fun. It's like a game. We show you images from a diet map we spent years building. And say, which of these two images looks more like stuff you eat, A or B? And we play that game until we've got you. It takes about 60 seconds. And then we can report back your diet type, operationally defined, your diet quality, objectively measured, estimates of your intake of all the different food groups, and 150 nutrients. 60 seconds. And then we leverage that same power. So this is unique in the world intellectual property. We have one patent issued. We have another patent pending. We published some validation papers. It's a real advance. Well, all of a sudden, we can measure diet anytime we want, at any interval we want. It's easy, effortless, fun, inexpensive. And then we can leverage that same pattern recognition approach to say, okay, we know where you're starting. Where would you like to be? What do you want diet to do for you? Do you want it to reduce inflammation, lower your weight, lower your blood pressure, mm. manage your diabetes? Tell us what you want. And then also tell us how do you actually want to eat? Are you Mexican-American? Do, do you want a Latin-style diet? And right. We can put those things together, dip into that same diet map and say the perfect cell for you out of this comprehensive diet map of all the different ways to eat is this one. So we know where you're starting. We know where you want to go. We can now personalize the journey for you so the incremental adjustments to the diet that you're starting with to get you to the diet you want. It's not generic. It's not one size fits all. It's you. It's your starting point, your destination, just like GPS. Right? GPS doesn't tell you where to go. It helps you get where you tell it you want to go. 
we've done that for Dodge. Now, if a, a, a wellness director brings you in and, 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 and implements this diet ID approach in their workforce, um, you know, time goes on, you're building up a very uh, personalized but, but uh, useful database uh, uh, that can be used on a per individual basis. I'm connecting that to the, you're rarely asked when you go to your primary care physician or whatever about what you're reading. So how do you now do something with that? Uh, how, how does that come to play? So, so we're, we're a B2B company, Steve, and we have over 100 corporate clients. Some of them are, are clinical practices, so we actually license to physicians, dietitians, health coaches, and our platform is comprehensive. Uh, I have a fantastic product team, so we've got all the appropriate bells and whistles. So we've got patient-facing materials that are very simple and user-friendly, and then we've got clinician dashboards where the information is comprehensive mm. and where you can aggregate for a whole population. So if you're managing population health, you can actually look at what is the distribution of diet quality at baseline, what are the different diet types my workforce has, who's at highest risk, you can risk stratify with this. You can both personalize the progress for the individual members of the workforce, but track the overall progress of the population. What have we done to mean diet quality? We've had a number of interventions where we've done that. We've published some where we've seen significant improvements in overall diet quality. And then we plug that into our ROI calculator and say, so here's what that means in terms of incident uh, and prevalent mm -hmm. hypertension, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and total cost associated with all those. We've, we've got all of that. And how can listeners contact your company? Diet.id.com. And uh, if, if you just go to that landing page, you'll scroll down, you'll see contact us, it'll open up a form and say what it is you want to here we, we have demos available. Uh, you know, my, my team is extremely responsive. With rare exception, you'll hear back within a day. All right. Very good. Yes. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Katz. This was uh, terrific, very informative as usual, and uh, we very much enjoyed speaking with you today. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing Institute podcast. To learn more about our resources and programs that help employers make employee well-being a bottom-line business strategy, please visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com.